Luke chapter 15. Grab your Bibles and go there. Luke 15, and you follow. As I begin reading a very familiar passage, beginning at verse 11. Luke 15, at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Well, we made it. We made it um, to the last parable that we will look at in this series on parables. Um, And I have saved the best for last, ladies and gentlemen, the parable of the prodigal son. It's called by many the, uh, the pearl of the parables. It's the, it's the gospel in the gospels. But whereas uh, we're at the final parable, that does not mean 
that we will uh, be able to cover it in one sermon. You know, I preached a series of 10 sermons on this same parable um, in 1999, 15 years ago. Some of you remember a bit of that. Can you imagine it's been 15 years? 15 years ago, I preached um, on this sermon, on on this parable. And um, I'm not sure how many sermons I'm going to preach on at this time. I I hope that it won't be that many, but I, I have no way of really yet knowing that. There'll be different sermons, but but not very different. Um, but the reason that they'll be different and hopefully fewer of them is because <clears throat> some of you may recall that 15 years ago when, uh, when we looked at this parable, that we as a congregation were facing an issue that required a, of us that we forgive. And so I went to this parable to try and feed my own soul in the hopes that um, that I not only could uh, arrive at forgiveness myself, but that I could help you get there. But by God's great kindness, no such issue exists this time around. Which means that that, that the whole thrust of the parables uh, of the sermons will be different, I think, than than the ones fifteen years ago. Something else that I would point out is that. <clears throat> um, since that, that, um, that series 15 years ago, um, this book was released by Tim Keller, um, which I'm told is, is quite wonderful. I do not own this book. I have not read this book. And let me tell you why. Um, knowing me, I, I've, I've thought that um, if I read it, I would see how much better it is than, than my treatment of the parable and that I would just end up regurgitating this book to you, which you really don't need me to do because you can buy the book and you read it for yourself without my any assistance from me. So I, I haven't, haven't read this. But, but here is the book that I have read, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen. Th- this is the book that influenced me 15 years ago, and it still influences me today. Um, it also, this book, introduced me <clears throat> to a Rembrandt painting called The Prodigal Son. I have the painting in laminate form. I have the painting... Um, that hangs in my office, and I, I have a larger version of this same painting uh, that hangs over my fireplace in my home. Guys, um, it was, it was Nowen's insights that captured me then, and I hope that will benefit us now, but the, the point is, so many of his insights were wrapped up in this painting, this painting by Rembrandt. So, um, if you're ready, I'm ready, and we can um, we can launch perhaps our last voyage of study over the parable of the prodigal son. Guys, there's a couple of things that I want to do this morning um, 
And, and in, in all honesty, they're really both by way of introduction to the parable. I, I want to get us put on the, on the right course um, in terms of understanding this parable. And so, uh, in, in a very real sense, all I've really got for you this morning is an introduction, um, kind of a framework that will help us, I hope, uh, understand the parable better. I only have two of them. Two, uh, two insights, and uh, hopefully they'll be beneficial for you. Here's the first one. Guys, um, I'm sure that you have heard the parable of the prodigal son preached numerous times before, and probably by far more skilled uh, teachers than I. But when I read um, sermons on this parable, or, or even hear them, it seems like um, there's this... There's this Big deal that is made, they always mention this. They, they say something like this. They say, um, this parable, it's not about one son. It's about two sons. There were two sons in this parable, and both of them were, were estranged from their father. Well, guys, I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong. But I am saying that I would like to respectfully disagree This parable is not about one son. It's not about two sons. It's not about forgiveness. It's about the man. This parable is about him. This whole parable revolves around him and how he deals with his two sons. I want you to notice in your, in your Bibles, the parable does not start like this. It does not say, there was once a young man who had a brother and a father. It doesn't start like that. Nor does it say, there was once a king who had two servants, or a landowner that had two slaves. It starts like this. There was a man. Who had two sons. This parable. Is about how this man. Loved his two sons. Whose sin was so different, that is, the, the, the boy's son, the, the son's sin was different, yes. But they were both indeed estranged from their father. This is a parable about how a father longs for and provides for intimacy with himself. In a word, you could say this is a parable about grace. Nothing is so intense as is parental love. Guys, this is a parable about fatherhood and sonship. It's about a father-son relationship, not a son-father relationship. The hero of this parable is the man 
to whom you are introduced in the opening three words. There was a man. And, I, and I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think so often the parable is handled and it, and it chases off in a distance about the, the evils of the prodigal son. And blah, 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 blah. The parable is not about them. The parable is about the man. And you know, guys, I think Rembrandt got that. Maybe better than some of us. Guys, let me explain. Rembrandt um, was credited with the reinvention. It's not that he invented it, but he he reinvented um, an artistic technique. And and I I probably am going to mispronounce the word, but it's chiaroscuro. That's the artistic technique. It's a Latin word which means light dark. Light dash dark. Um, The technique was the use of light versus darkness to make emphases in your piece of art. Um, Without a doubt, the most light in this painting of the prodigal son falls on the face of the father. Rembrandt is drawing your attention to the father because it seems that Rembrandt understood that this parable is about him. It's about the man this is not a lesson about the, the errors of the wickedness of prodigality or prodigal living. It is a lesson on the stunning willingness of this father to receive and to restore all those who approach him for restoration. This is not a parable about you and me forgiving each other. Oh, it's about forgiveness, all right. The man's. The man's forgiveness. The father's forgiveness of his two wayward sons. Folks, the behavior that is obscene in this parable is not the behavior of the prodigal son. behavior that is obscene is the behavior of the man, of the father. Oh, guys, there's a lot of sons who treat their fathers this badly. But there is only one God who treats sinners like this. If, If you're amazed that two sons could treat their father this way, then stop it. Don't waste your amazement. Be amazed that the God who is being pictured here is one who is eagerly and readily and joyously receiving people who have blown it 
and blown it badly. Like the prodigal. Like me. And like you. It's a gross misuse of your time to spend it wondering how this boy could do such a thing. Spend it marveling that this man could do such a thing. Guys, I I am saying all this because I believe that it is a needed corrective for the evangelical world. And and let me explain myself. Here's, Here's what I mean. I am convinced, as are others, that one of the reasons that the Christian church is so weak, so mushy, so flabby, is because we speak so little and we know so little about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Our views of him are so paltry, and thus the fear of God is virtually non-existent among evangelicals. Let me, let me just give you an illustration. I want you to go into the, to the average Christian bookstore in the, any city you like, and I want you to ask the clerk to take you to the section where you can find a book on the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ. They'll take you to a section, a whole wall of books. And then ask the same clerk, could you show me the selections that I could have about God the Holy Spirit? And because of the charismatic movement, you would be taken to another section that has another whole wall about God the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad those books exist. But ask that same clerk. Ask him. Could you, could you point out some books in your store that are exclusively devoted to God the Father? Well, there might be a couple, maybe a few. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I can only think of three. Let me tell you the best book ever written on God the Father. It is the Old Testament. And yet, we don't know much about that either. We stay away from the Old Testament. And so the best resource we have on God the Father is something we avoid. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it's no wonder that the sovereignty of God goes down, is hard to swallow for so many of us. You know, Wycliffe Bible translators bless them for their existence, but you know when they, tra- when they translate a Bible, they don't even translate the Old Testament. They translate only the New Testament. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we avoid the Old Testament to our soul's detriment. And the church suffers from a missing moral backbone. We live loose, flabby, carnal lives. Because missing from our concept of God is the God who thundered at Sinai. The God who made the mountain smoke. The God before whom Isaiah trembled as the angels in the room saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
We're ignorant of the God about whom David said, my flesh trembles for fear of you. Where, ladies and gentlemen, where has that gone? Where do you see it in the evangelical world? Okay, Dr. Young, fine. Uh, so w- where can I learn about this, the first person, that God the Father? Well, I've already told you one place. Um, the Old Testament. Let me tell you a couple of others. One place that you can find out about him is in the gospel. I didn't say the gospels. I said the gospel. Guys, if you've got a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, then steal one or get one for Christmas or go to our lost and found. But you need it right this minute. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, very famous. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, you know. Romans 1. I'm going to read you two verses, 16 and 17. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Wait, 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 wait. For it. What's that it? Oh, it's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. What? Ladies and gentlemen, in the gospel, what we get is a display of the power of God. Keep reading. Um, the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, what's that it? Well, that's the gospel. In that gospel, the righteousness of God, the Father, is revealed. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what you see Jesus Christ doing for the sake of sinners is God's righteousness on display. Folks, Christ's death indeed means life for us. Yes, but preeminently, Christ's life and death is a display of the power and the righteousness of God. John 1.18 says that Jesus Christ came to make him known. And we don't know him. Jesus says, I came to do the will of my Father. It is my meat and my drink. Guys, it is all of the power and the righteousness of God that comes bursting into life through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me show you another place. This is another famous, it's in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5. You've heard this before. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at it, ladies and gentlemen. For our sake he made him. Who's the he and who's the him? Well, for our sake he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? Why did you do that, God? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Saving us, ladies and gentlemen, was never the goal. It was never the ultimate goal. We're the, we're the penultimate goal. The ultimate goal what is, was in the, that then the saving of us 
God's righteousness might be revealed and he become all in all. Let me tell you one more place where we are drawn face to face with the first person of the Godhead. The parable of the prodigal son. This parable told by Jesus Christ would have us to focus not on either of these two boys, but on the man who both boys called father. The beauty in this parable is the father, the man, the father, and in Christ we become his adopted sons no matter how far I used to live from him. No matter what sin was my particular specialty. This parable is about how this man makes a way for sinners like us to come home. Here's the second thing, guys. The second just introductory comment. You can't forget this as we, as we move through this parable. You do know, I, I hope, that Jesus was goaded into telling this parable, into telling this story. This, which is one of the most famous stories that was ever told, was told on the heels of a nasty little skirmish which Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. If you've still got your Bibles open, just look at the front of that chapter, chapter 15, Luke 15, where the parable is found. It's just verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the scribes and the Pharisees and all the tax collectors, I mean, all the Pharisees got together and they're grumbling. Well, what are you guys grumbling about? Well, you're grumbling because he receives sinners and he eats with them. And you know that our Talmud. Our Talmud makes clear that rabbis were not to meet with the Amhamarets, you know, the people of the land. Why, we're far too clean to be rubbing elbows with people that dirty. That Jesus, he's soft on sin. I wonder what else he does with those people. Blech. It's disgusting. In the face of that bit of scorn, Jesus tells a trilogy of parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and this one. And all three of them are provoked by folks who were very impressed with their own righteousness. Guys, here's my point. The audience that Jesus chiefly has in mind, the, the, the people to whom he is speaking with these parables, when he, when he tells this parable, the ones that he has 
in the forefront of his mind are the ones that just criticized him. And the ones that just criticized him were not a group of prodigals. They were a group of elder brothers. Preeminently, ladies and gentlemen, the character in this parable that depicts the the scribes and the Pharisees and the scorners of Jesus Christ in verses 1 and 2 is this guy. Not this guy. It's the elder brother to whom Jesus is addressing his words. Guys, here's what I'm saying. To become fixated on the sinful excesses of the prodigal son and to make a big deal about all his sin with prostitutes and all that business is to miss the point. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? This audience... is far more made up of elder brothers than it is prodigals. Oh, there, there, there are a few of us who, who squandered our property in reckless living. But for most of us, we much more resemble the elder brother than we do the prodigal son. We're the religious crowd. We're, we're like these, these, these fellows over here in 15, 1 and 2. And this parable, ladies and gentlemen, has us dead in its sights. This is not a parable about prodigals so much as it is a parable about Pharisees. And we are far more likely to be guilty of the sin of the Pharisee than we are the sin of the prodigal son. Guys, you think it's tough for prodigals to find their way back home? Oh, it's, it's much tougher <coughs> for the elder brother types to, to know how needy they are. I mean, when, when you're dressed like this and you know that you're on the brink of starvation, you know you need this father. But when you're dressed like this, and your stomach is filled with things that you think you earned. Then flinging yourself at the Father. <laughs> That's not something I'm open to. I, want to. I don't want to kneel before him and bury my head in his bosom. No, no. I prefer to stand over here. In my hideous, smug, 
self-righteousness. Because I'm such a good person. And because I do, I get left out of the party. Guys, the Pharisees were people who thought of sin as being bad things that you do. This parable, or or Jesus in this parable, pictures prodigality in terms of us putting distance between me and the Father. Tell me, which one of these two sons do you think are further away from the Father? The one who did all those bad things? Or the one who thinks he's done all those good things? This is a parable, ladies and gentlemen, uniquely intended for us. One other thing, and I'll quit. There's a lot at stake in this parable, ladies and gentlemen. A lot at stake. And one of the least known things that is at stake is that one of the clearest ways that you can evaluate a preacher is to examine how he handles the parable of the prodigal son. When he's done, Where is the light focused? There was a man who sent his son to die in my place. This man receives sinners. And he eats with them. He is a man. Rich in mercy and grace. Have you ever buried your head? In his bosom? not you will not be going to the heavenly party our father would you grant these people the sweetness
of having a preacher that rightly handles this parable. And where he is not handling it faithfully, would you show him before he opens his big fat mouth? Because, oh God, there is nothing more beautiful to the sinner than to see a picture of our Heavenly Father playing the role of obscene behavior to save people as wicked as we. Father, if you brought people in here this morning who have not yet met Jesus Christ, would you allow them to see him in all of his saving beauty. We ask it in Jesus' name.